You know, I'm gonna give you a history lesson. We got some dumbass motherfuckers floating around this country. <laughs> start laughing! And when I do, start fucking. Also, y'all did some nasty ass jokes on my ass, too. Funny jokes and unfunny jokes come out of the same birth. You fucking guys are unbelievable. Evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Why Are You Laughing, a history of comedy podcast. And today, I'm pleased to introduce to you the great Carl Reiner, a man who's had a historic career. I don't know that I would say he's at the forefront of people's minds, particularly like my generation. When you think of uh, old greats, even his good buddy Mel Brooks and Norman Lear, who we'll talk about in a second, probably come to mind before Carl Reiner. And uh, maybe even some people think of Rob Reiner before Carl Reiner, but uh, if that's true, it's a shame because Carl Reiner's a uh, true legend of the game and has had some great moments that we will discuss. And uh, I mentioned Norman Lear, too, that before we get into anything, I want to address that uh, as we record this, it was just announced a couple hours ago. Norman Lear passed away at 101 years old. By the time you guys are listening to this, I'm sure you've already heard. Um but yeah, Norman Lear, one of the uh, biggest figures in television history, no longer with us. And it's, you know, we did an episode very early on about Norman Lear, which, as I remember, we were on the side of Eric Monty on a lot of issues. So I don't know if it's a glowing <laughs> memorial of Norman Lear, but, That's right. but go check it out. Uh, Norman Lear, you know, we talked about it with Red Fox a little bit, too. There are some issues with Norman Lear that you could definitely call into question, but the guy's alleged, when you just look at. Uh, three shows, All in the Family, The Jeffersons, and Sanford and Son. Three of the biggest shows in television television history. And also just like race relations in general. Like if you take I, I, sitcoms, it, you know, it's um, it's not the most, inf- it doesn't have the same impact as uh, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. I'm aware of that. But if you look at like the history of television, I don't know if there's, uh, if there are two bigger sitcoms in uh, black culture than Sanford and Son and the Jeffersons. You could probably throw the Cosby show in there, maybe. But the Jeffersons and Sanford and Son, certainly two of the biggest. And all in the family, by most accounts, people would probably call the best sitcom of all time. Um, you know, I, I'm impartial to Seinfeld, but I'm also aware there's no uh, George Costanza, Homer Simpson, Larry David, any of these great characters um, without uh, Archie Bunker. You know, Peter Griffin, uh, Cartman, like these characters don't exist. They're all influenced by the character of Archie Bunker that uh, Norman Lear created. So shout out to Norman Lear. Um, you can't really, you know, it's hard to shed a tear for him. The guy lived to 101. Right. It seemed like a lot of good years. He was working pretty much all the way till the end. Like, I don't know. I can't think of seeing him in too recent memory, but like the thing he did with Kimmel, you know, bringing those live shows back, that was only like two years ago. He was 99. So, uh, worked into his hundreds, which is pretty impressive. Um, so shout out to Norman Lear and also in comedy related deaths for you. I know a lot of you guys are Howard Stern fans. Ralph Sorella died, uh, Ralph Howard Stern's stylist and longtime best buddy. Yeah. There are a lot of rumors about what Howard and Ralph's relationship were, but, uh, <laughs> Ralph also died today. So very sad. Um, I don't know. I, you know, whenever we do Howard Stern, I uh, always admit that I don't know the nitty gritty the way I do with Opie and Anthony. So like anytime I would hear Ralph's phone calls, it was always him piling on someone, you know, Artie was getting ragged on. So Ralph would call in and goof on him. Um, We did probably play a few clips of Ralph on 9-11. He was on the phone for that. 
So a lot of phone calls when like big things were happening, but I don't know a lot of Ralph segments where Ralph was the center. So uh, if you guys do, if you have any suggestions, then we could definitely do a Ralph, maybe a bonus Ralph episode or something like that on the uh, Patreon. Um, and I will also look into uh, some of those segments as well, but maybe we'll do something with Ralph Sorella if you guys have any suggestions. So RIP to everybody. <laughs> and But uh, you know what's not dead and is very much alive, and that's blindmike.net. That's what Norman Valier and Ralph Sorella would have wanted. I think they're dying words, both of them. They called each other and they said, we should subscribe to blindmike.net. And then they, they died, unfortunately. <laughs> so if you guys want to replace the money that they would have injected mm -hmm. into this program, uh, then become a Patreon or YouTube member. We appreciate it. You get bonus episodes as well as early releases. You get all these free Why You Laughing episodes a week early and uh, all the bonus content that we put up there as well. Um, or you can just support the show for free. We appreciate that. Also subscribe on YouTube or wherever else you get podcasts. Um, you know, leave a comment, like uh, share, tell a friend about it. If you have friends that are comedy fans that would like this kind of stuff, let them know, post it on Instagram or wherever you, uh, you know, wherever you share things personally. And uh, we appreciate that. All that helps the program. So go to blindmike.net. Thank you very much. And if you are a niche fan of Quincy, there are new uh, shirts up now. The Clugmania shirts. Oh, that's or even, you know, if you're why, why you laughing fan, too. We have why you laughing merch. I never mention it. So you probably doesn't know it. Don't know it exists, but it is up there. If you want uh, like hoodies and shirts and stuff like that, uh, you can click the merch tab at blindmike.net as well. So. Uh, all right. Enough of that. These people, you know, Norman Lear is going to be celebrated enough this week. You know, he's not remembered enough. And that's Carl Reiner. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope I didn't overstate how underrated he is. Certainly people know Carl Reiner, you know, whether it's his directorial work, his writing work, um, or his, you know, on, on camera persona, people definitely know who he is. He's just not quite as big a name. Like, you know, I think, uh, Mel Brooks, everyone knows could rattle off at least three, four projects Mel Brooks has worked on, even if you're not a huge fan. Uh, Carl Reiner, if I don't, I don't know if he has that same impact because a lot of his greatest projects you don't associate with Carl Reiner. You might associate with Dick Dan, Dick Van Dyke, or Steve Martin, or even Mel Brooks. Um, so that's what we're doing today: is paying homage to the great Carl Reiner. And uh, as we always say, these old guys. I love talking about these old guys because they all, they always have a story. You know, it's not usually someone that just went to theater school and then became an actor and then became a comedian. No, it's someone that lived a life, has a little dirt under their fingernails. And that's uh, certainly Carl Reiner fits into that category. So uh, let's start with his uh, early, early days, because as a lot of guys did in this generation, Carl Reiner was working in a factory at the age of 16. Franklin Delano Roosevelt instituted a thing called the WPA, and my brother Charlie came to me. I was working in a machinist shop, and a machine shop fixing hat machines. I was getting $8 a week, and I was 17 years old. I had graduated high school at 16, and my brother Charlie came to me and said, look at this thing I found on the Daily News, the WPA project, the Works Progress Administration, funding the arts, giving a chance to people in the arts to, to work. There's a dramatic school that is for free downtown in Center Street. Why don't you go there, Carl? I had no idea. I always could be funny. I could tell jokes. I could, I could do voices. But I didn't have any way to become an actor until my brother Charlie showed me this thing. And because Charlie and a government that cared about the people, I am here today. I thank you. 
And uh, Carl Reiner's a you know a, a war veteran, obviously, but also his uh, his brother Charlie fought in eleven major battles in World War II, including uh, Iwo Jima. So like he he really is, is uh, um, uh, an American hero. And was there more to that clip that I cut it off, Craig? No, I accidentally clicked it when I was minimizing it. Um, so what's you know what we don't appreciate enough is like there's there's plenty of people that bitch about this generation and we're we're pussies now and you know we, we forget the generations before us and all that but we don't do enough is pay tribute to the guys that did give us the privilege to to be pussies basically you know what i mean like guys like carl reiner legitimately fought for this but also like appreciated the fact that he was 16 years old his brother said take a writing class and then when he got out of the military he was able to use those skills and he would tell other people to do that like he he was very uh you know not to get too political super left-leaning but a lot of what he advocated for, and you could even hear it in that speech, was uh, government programs that help the arts. You know, and I know Craig wants to tear those down, but Carl Reiner was definitely an advocate for a lot of that stuff because he came up. Th- those are the people I respect much more than people that come up in my generation and bitch about things. Is Carl Reiner is a guy who literally fought in a war and then said, "All right, well, now let's try to give people a, a better life. Try and benefit these people so they don't have to do that kind of stuff." Appreciated the country that he came up in, and that's why I always like talking about these guys that you would never really know. Like it's, you know, now I think people make it into, you know, if uh, if 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 a war broke out and and Mark Normand was fighting in it, he would do an hour on it, obviously. And I don't I don't begrudge him for that, certainly. But like, if you listen to Rickles or Mel Brooks or Carl Reiner, like in interviews, they'll talk about it when asked, but it wasn't like, you know, Mel Brooks did a one man show on his struggle in the military and they, like now we're much more encouraged to wear our hardships on our sleeves. Whereas those guys were like, yeah, that was a part of my life. I did that. And I appreciate the, the life I have now. It made them into better men rather than like giving them fodder for content, you know? Exactly. And uh, after hearing about Carl's like experience in the war and stuff, it makes me hate his son that much more. <laughs> well, listen, I knew Craig would turn this. Rob <laughs> Reiner's done a lot of great things. He's become a real hateable follow on Twitter. Oh but, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not here to talk about that today. Uh, uh, next we have him talking more about uh, world war two. Okay, good. Let's hear it. This is him with uh, Conan, right? Yeah. You were in the army and we're talking, is this world war two? World War II. And you were performing. One of the things you did is that they saw that you were a good performer. Well, so that became kind of your job was to perform for the soldiers. Isn't that right? It, it was a very fascinating thing. I went to, I was in Oahu and I went to see a, Maurice Evans did a play called Hamlet in Confatigues. Mm-hmm. I went to see it and there's my friend Howard Morris. I'd seen him on the... Legendary comedic we, performer. We worked yeah. together on the NYA radio workshop. Yeah. And I said, my God, that's Howard. I went backstage... And I said, Howard, you were Laertes, you were sensation. Without taking a, a bow, he said, do you, have a, do you have an act? I said, well, I work in the records. He said, we need a comedian for this touring show. And I said, well, I'm going someplace tomorrow, Detachment 18, really, the next day. Right. Detachment 18 was going to Iwo Jima oh for the God. invasion. Yeah. I didn't know that. I said, well, I'm, he says, well, come and audition for Maurice Evans and Captain Ludden, Alan Ludden. Yeah. 
And my friend Saul Palmer says, go find out how good you are. Let the professionals tell you. I went auditioned, and Alan Ludden said, we'd like to have you with us. I said, I'm going someplace tomorrow. He says, we'll arrange this. You don't. I said, how can you do that? He says, call General Richardson and replace you. This is amazing. You were on your way to go to Iwo Jima where so many people didn't come back. I know. And then you, at the last second, get to be a performer. How hard is it for performing for troops? I'm thinking World War II, those troops, they'll let you know if you're not funny. They're not, it's not going to be a polite crowd. Is that true? Yes, it is. I must say that. I, I killed. I, I was a- <laughs> And that, that's what I respect so much about those old guys is like, like, hey, do you want to come act in this thing? It's like, nah, I'm going somewhere tomorrow. <laughs> somewhere was Iwo Jima. <laughs> I, got, I don't know. I got a thing to take care of. Sorry. I can't do it. Yes. But See me but about said, a war. Yeah, right. He said, uh, you know, what he liked about writing and eventually becoming a writer is like when he would act and stuff like he was just talking about, he literally said like, you know, I had William Shakespeare writing for me. So acting was easy. What I found challenging and interesting was writing about my experiences and coming up with things to to write about. And that's kind of where he got uh, in into writing uh, more so. Um, next, we have uh, him talking about Sid Caesar. Yeah. So we talked a lot about Carl in the Mel Brooks episode mm-hmm. um, because their their careers are so tied together, as well as uh, Sid Caesar, because that's where all the, these guys met. Now, Mel was like a freelancer, essentially, you know, writing jokes for Sid and Sid was paying him on the side. Carl Reiner was a much bigger part of that show. He was basically the uh, straight man to Sid Caesar. So he was on camera. Uh, People knew who he was. Even like uh, later, you know, Mary Tyler Moore said she was excited to work with Carl Reiner because she had a crush on him from the Sid Sid Caesar's uh, Your Show of Shows. So like he was he was a, a, a guy that was known and like. That's the thing is, I don't know how big your show of shows was at the time, but also remember, essentially a third of everyone that had a TV was watching that. That's the interesting thing about like networks at that time is you really only had three options. So even the, the shitty shows people enjoyed, but your show of shows people tri- tribute is like one of the very early variety shows. Basically, it was sketch comedy at a time where like that wasn't a big thing. And then that art form kind of died after your show of shows for a brief time until I guess, uh, uh, according to Carl Reiner, Carol Burnett brought it back. And then it was obviously SNL and so many things. Now you can list, you know, 15 notable sketch comedy shows that have been in the last 30, 40 years. But, uh, at the time it wasn't done that much, obviously, because these are the early days of television. So let's hear a little bit more about his relationship with Sid Caesar. And in the second, third week, um, I was in Max's office where we all congregated to hear the material that was written for the first, in those first two days. And it, that's where I got my first little foot in the door, or a big foot in the door, because I knew when I came on the show that I would never be able to use my ability to double talk, which I did in my act. I did French and Italian double talk. And, and Sid was the master and, and is the master. Nobody's ever done double talk languages like he had. And I said, well, I'll never be able to use mine because mine is a cut below his. But I got the idea. I said, why don't we do a French movie? We all used to go see French movies, Italian movies, and J- Japanese movies. Uh, and together, we'd always go in the first three weeks. No, but through, f- from then on, 
we we knew when what we said we had all seen Japanese movies and and foreign movies uh, not in concert. So when I said let's do a French movie, and they said how how are you going to do a French movie? We had done silent movies. We had done take at that point we hadn't done many takeoffs of big movies yet, American movies. And they said how? And I got up and I started. I went to Sid and I started to sell him some cigarettes or something and and double talk and. Immediately, we had this conversation. We got into a fight, and they said, great, great. And Imogene said, I don't know how to do that. I said, well, we'll write it out for you. We'll write out the double talk. So that's the week I got into the writer's room. That was the most important moment for me that I came. I had the guts to get up and say, let's do this. And Max Liebman says, okay, you're in the writer's room now. So I was a writer without portfolio. I was what they call an effing actor. So that's really stories like that really stand out to me in particular as a guy who's, you know, timid and self-conscious and uh, nervous, like won't, you know, won't take a lot of those chances. Uh, It's always uh, a little inspiring when you hear a guy like that basically say, because how much different would Carl Reiner's career have been if he was like, well, I'm not supposed to talk to Sid Caesar. I'm not supposed to talk to the head writer or whatever. Like that's not my role. So now the the problem is judging those moments and knowing your spots and knowing when that's right. Cause so many times those, those things backfire. I'm sure there's 10 million to one the amount of stories where some asshole approached a guy in the position of Sid Caesar and was like, let me give you my ideas, sir. Let me riff with you for a minute. <laughs> and they just weren't funny or where was the wrong time. He was in a bad mood, whatever. So I'm not saying just do it all the time, but it is. it does kind of go to show you at moments like that where Sid Caesar says like, hey, I had the guts to approach this guy, give him my ideas, and it paid off. So those those uh, those moments always stand out to me. Yeah, and it's always uh, the way that people get approached. I, I know you've talked about it before too. Like um, when you were first looking for a producer, you had people like sending stuff in, telling you why people suck and like this isn't funny because this and all that stuff. Well, it's usually like a fan of Kirk's is just like. I've never produced anything before, but I'd like to be essentially part of Kirk's show. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's like you have to, you have to be able to back it up, which Carl Reiner obviously could. Right. Um, next we move on to uh, Seinfeld and Carl talking about um, uh, Mel Brooks, which kind of gets more into yeah, their relationship. So they did a very good uh, comedians in cars getting coffee episode with uh, the sign man. And uh, this is a thing. So uh, actually, I just watched um, Judd Apatow put out uh, Bob and Don, a love story about Bob Newhart and Don Rickles relationship. We also talked a lot about that when we talked about Newhart. And um, uh, it was interesting because Newhart says in that, like it's the, the, the documentary starts by Newhart saying, you know, in his in his final days, Don was like, hey, keep my name alive. And that's something you kind of forget about these guys because they are very old school and they keep a lot of their emotions in and everything like that. You forget these were guys that like wanted to be famous and wanted to be known. And there is they they do appreciate people keeping their names alive. And I think that's what guys like Mel Brooks, Norman Lear, Bob Newhart, Rick, like they really appreciated that and lifted each other up over the years and like wanted to promote each other. Um, So let's hear a little from these boys. 
Mel comes over every night. Every night. How long is that relationship? From 1950 on. So that's 62 years. First day I met him, he got up and did a Jewish pirate. Hysterical. You know, he said, I can't afford to pillage and rape anymore. $3.50 for sale clothes. Who can afford that? He went on. <laughs> and the following day, I came in and said, here's a man who was at the scene of the crucifixion 2,000 years ago. And I started to interview because he had done the pirate, so yeah. you went back even further. Yeah, I said, here's a man who knows everything. Okay, so Mel comes over. About what time at night would you say he gets there? Eight o'clock to eat. But and we, what do you guys watch? We like a movie if somebody says, secure the perimeter. Anything where they secure the perimeter. And, and somebody says, get some rest. Get, get some rest. We watch Jeopardy when we eat. <laughs> But wait a minute. What, Jeopardy's not on at 8 o'clock. I tape it. You... <laughs> <laughs> Seinfeld's almost, because, you know, all these guys are so successful and everything, and Seinfeld's almost mystified that these guys just go to each other's house and they tape Jeopardy and watch it together. Because it is, that is so rare. Right? And even you mentioned uh, KMS. It was a week or two ago that we were mentioning... Um, uh, duos or even like bands and they always there's always some riff because of the egos that get involved and when you look at Newhart and Rickles and uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner they never had that they were able to sustain a friendship for 70 years or whatever it is um, which is pretty crazy when you think about it I think the main thing is like they weren't these guys weren't dependent on each other because I was even when I was watching the Newhart and Rickles thing I thought to myself Boy, that's such a natural, like, buddy comedy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you would think there'd be, like, three or four movies uh, starring Newhart and Rickles, with Newhart as the straight man and Rickles as the, the you know, crazy guy. And uh, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks kind of have that same dynamic, and you think, why did they do more together? Obviously, they did the 2,000-year-old man together. They've done a ton of interviews together and everything. Um, but why didn't they do more together? And I think you start to realize like, oh, that's how they were. That's the only reason they're friends for 70 years. Is they didn't work together too much. Right. They didn't get sick of each other. <laughs> there wasn't a game of uh, egos going on and they were able to, you know, be distant enough that they could go to each other's house every night and have dinner. And uh, the other thing that I think uh, Carl Reiner mentioned this, uh, it could have been in the Apatow documentary, but I think this was Carl Reiner that basically said, like, our wives were friends. <laughs> like, if our wives didn't like each other, we'd be fucked. But luckily, like, <laughs> yeah. that, we can go on vacations together, we yeah. can go to dinner together. Like, that's pretty much what, what dri drives those relationships. And uh, it's very rare in Hollywood, but I think those are probably two of the best examples of, uh, like, true, true friendships. Yep. There's something to working with people that you like. It just never ends well. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. So he mentions there the... Um, uh, the 2000 year old man thing. The, the, the story is basically that like the only reason they recorded that at first is that Carl Reiner was trying to get his tape recorder to work. <laughs> and in an effort to do that, he was just like, uh, I understand you were at the, the crucifixion and Mel Brooks just riffs. And they start doing that at parties and things, which we'll hear about. Um, but it is funny how those things just happen. And, you know, Larry David always said, like he wrote Seinfeld, for his friends. Like he wanted to make his friends laugh. And I think that's so much of comedy where it's these guys are just trying to break each other's balls or make each other laugh. And then you realize like, Oh, an audience would like this. Like they want to be in on the joke with us. It's the most relatable thing you can do. 
because yeah. everyone's got their group of friends, bus balls, whatever. Um, For sure. But uh, on the 2,000-year-old man, we have been talking with Mark Marin about it. Yeah, so let's hear a little more about that. And at one particular party out here at an A-list party, that was Joyce Haber's name for star, real stars, mm-hmm. at an A-list party, after we finished, three people came up to us. The first one was George Burns smoking a cigar and saying, uh, you got that on a record? And we said, no. He said, well, put it on a record or I'm going to steal it. <laughs> and then it was J- uh, Edward G. Robinson said, He's make a play out of the thousand year old man. He said, I want to play that on Broadway. And I said, It's two thousand years. I can play any age. I remember saying that. And the last one coming up was the dearest of all was a guy named Steve Allen who yeah. cared about handing people handing the world comedy people. He would love nothing more than to discover a comedian Great champion and say, Here he is. Yeah. And so he came over and he says, Fellas, he says, You gotta put that on record. He says, I'll give you a studio that I use for World Pacific for my jazz recordings. And we went into that studio with about 150 friends and uh, we wailed for two, three hours. That was the original. And the original. And we cut it down to 47 minutes. And then we still didn't know it was going to work. It wasn't for friends. And uh, they mentioned Steve Allen there. And you hear the way they're talking about Steve Allen being a champion of comedy. A lot of people, so a lot of uh, the Howard Stern detractors over the years have pointed at Steve Allen as a guy that Howard completely ripped off or at least was influenced by. But uh, Steve Allen had a lot more influence in comedy than you don't hear his name a lot in this uh, generation of guys, but he definitely had some impact and he was very good that Carl and Mellon wanted, like he would have them on his show and uh, he want, he, he saw the, the brilliance in this 2000 year old man bit. And it's arguably, I don't know. It's tough to like, to me, the thing I know Carl Reiner most from was the jerk. But then you look at like Dick Van Dyke's show and you know how long that reran on television and the 2000 year old man and the way people still talk about that to this day. Uh, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what his most influential thing was. Same with Mel Brooks. But like in looking at interviews with, for both of these guys, having done an episode on both of them now, uh, they get asked about the 2000 year old man bit a lot. A and like particularly Mel Brooks has done so many movies since then. And people still bring that up. So for Steve Allen at a party uh, and, you know, uh, George Burns and all these guys that they mentioned, for them to be like, you got to do something with that. Uh, That's it's very smart. And again, how like these guys encouraged each other. And it is always weird to me. Like this was a big thing back in the day. And I guess the the early days of, um, you know, this, the, the form of entertainment that we have now, it was the very early days of, you know, TV and radio and that kind of stuff. Um, so I, it's just a different world that I can't really get my head around, but if two cornballs were doing a bit, they had rehearsed <laughs> at a party I was at, I would certainly not think, oh, well, these two will be legends in 70 years. Yeah. I, but <laughs> back then though, they didn't have phones. So they were probably like, oh, yeah. thank God something to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, let's hear a little more about, uh, what went into that. The, this is, uh, England. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this uh, crossed over the pond, as they say, and uh, became a very big thing. And this is a funny story about, um, is it Cary Grant he's talking about? I think. It was my neighbor, and I gave him an album, and he came back and he says, Carl, can I have a dozen? And I said, 
what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to London. I says, are you going to take him to London? Yes. He said, they speak English there, you know. <laughs> and, and he came back and he said, she loved it. I said, ooh, he's the queen mother. I said, you took this to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> oh, my he God. He says, yes. And she laughed. <laughs> and I said to Mel, the biggest shicks in the world accepted it. So anybody <laughs> would. And, of course, <clears throat> it did take off for that first album. And then we made five albums. After you got the that. royal stamp of approval. Yes, the, the royal stamp. It's it'd be so funny if like Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks weren't successful and they still had that story. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like Carrie Grant just went and told the Queen and she loved it, and the people would be like, "Oh, bullshit!" Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it had it had very mainstream yeah. appeal, which is um, the influence that that had. Like, I think Woody Allen. Uh, just you could watch this by watching three seconds of each of these men. Woody Allen probably had much more influence on Larry David than Mel Brooks did. But then when you listen to like just the idea of what the 2000 year old man bit is, it's a guy talking very generically and kind of stereotypically Jewish for the time in a way that obviously he wouldn't have been talking about 2000 years ago, but he's talking about topics that existed then like, you know, Jesus coming into his store and (laughs) I never buys anything (laughs) Uh, like that. The conversational aspect of that, like huge impact on Seinfeld. I think like just when you watch George and Jerry riffing, it feels very much like the way that uh, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks would improv with each other. Yeah. Just even uh, his overstuffed wallet, just something like that. <laughs> right. Right. Um, uh, last clip from Marin, but this is him talking about the straight man. Yeah. This I think is a, a, a big deal because Carl Reiner, Carl Reiner was so good at being the straight man mm-hmm. that it impacted his life. And I think made him less of a recognizable figure um, than a lot of other people because he was so good at being the straight man. In terms of being a straight man, in, in terms of being a guy that's known as that, what, what does that require? I mean, it, it required, I, I've, I've finally think, figured it out only in the last couple of months, what I really am. If somebody said, what are you? I am the master Master of ceremonies. Mm-hmm. I get a greater kick out of saying, and here is, uh, because I've done hundreds of uh, benefits for the Writers Guild, the Directors yeah. Guild, and, and I emcee these shows. I never prepare because I can't prepare. I've had this ability since I'm 18 years old, and I found it right there at the uh, Alabama Acres, where I used to do the game shows. I used to introduce acts. And I, I would find the fun by looking out at the audience. I would say what's on their mind. So it's yeah. on everybody's mind. You say the truth. You don't have to be funny. Right. You say the absolute truth that everybody's thinking. And somebody dares to say it. And it becomes terribly funny. So I've had this ability. And I realized that what I always have done is and enjoyed doing was introducing people. And, and when you introduce a funny person and they get it, you, and you come out smiling and applauding, you're part of the, yeah. you're part of it. You are the one. So, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this, but I don't want to make it sound, I've realized I've done it already, that I've made it sound like I've discovered some nobody in Carl Reiner. Yeah. I am fully aware he's very famous and successful. And I remember uh, when we did the Gary Shandling episode, um, Carl was saying that Carl was listened to the episode and he goes, you know, people know who Gary Shandling is, right? <laughs> Cause I guess I talked about how underrated he is so much that it made it seem like I was like, guys, you gotta, you, you should hear about this Gary Shandling guy. Carl needs to understand. There are people that will listen that don't know. That's who we're talking to. 
<laughs> well, but not only that, my thing, like when I'm talking about Carl Reiner, super successful, obviously. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that, and I guess you just have to determine, determine what's more important to you. But if Carl Reiner had more of an ego, he probably could have been more of an in front of the camera presence. Like he was a very talented guy. Maybe he could have done that. Maybe it wouldn't have worked. Who knows? But like his career could have been entirely different if he had more of an ego, his self-awareness to say like, Hey, I'm the straight man. I'm a great master of ceremonies. I'm great at introducing people and kind of, uh, you know, letting them shine. I think that worked to his benefit and he knew who he was. He knew, and that allowed him to be a good director and a good writer. Like bitterness kills a lot of comedians. Oh yeah. And I guess that's my point is if Carl Reiner had more of an ego, maybe it would have worked, but it also wouldn't have allowed him to have, you know, a 70 year friendship with Mel Brooks and a 50 year friendship with Norman Lear. And, you know, his marriage lasted until he like, he had a very successful marriage. So these relationships wouldn't be as healthy if Carl Reiner had more of an ego. And that's what I was most impressed about him with because oftentimes uh, the straight man in a duo like, you know, uh, we talk about Opie and Anthony a lot. Opie's a perfect example of that. But there's, you know, a litany. I would say with most duos like that, the straight man wants you to know how funny he actually is. Because the straight man never gets respect. You just think like, oh, he's there to let the other guy go off and riff. You don't realize that there's a skill to that. Carl Reiner realized there was a skill to it and didn't care if you noticed. And that's what was, you know, in my, in my like going through this. Uh, what was most impressive to me about him is he didn't want any of that spotlight, even though he did, he wanted it enough to be in Hollywood for so many years, but he didn't really care if he was, you know, the the second fiddle on a project. Right. And um, he also was on the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. So the Dick Van Dyke show, as he's going to explain um, was his creation and, you know, because he was a kind of a known figure in your show of shows and working with uh, Sid Caesar and everything, people were trying to pitch him sitcoms. And like you said, uh, the variety show was kind of dead. So what mm-hmm. he had known wasn't working anymore. He couldn't really pitch those. So he had to start pitching sitcoms. And uh, this is one idea that he had. And uh, we'll talk more about it once we hear this. Well, right after the uh, show of shows ended mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, with Sid Caesar and Caesar's Hour, the, the review format was dead until Carol Burnett brought it she back. She brought it back, yeah. And uh, so I was being offered situation comedies, and they weren't very good. And my wife read one. She said, why don't you write one? I said, I don't know how to write that. I was on Fire Island, and I said to myself, what piece of ground do I stand on that nobody stands on? I live in New Rochelle, work in New York on a variety show. So I'll write about that. And I wrote a thing called Head of the Family. And it was financed by Peter Lawford. Mm-hmm. He paid for the pilot. And I wrote 13 episodes. So I'd have it ready in case went on. Other, other writers would have a, a template. Mm-hmm. And so I did the pilot with Barbara Britton and Morty Gunty and Sylvia Miles. It was fair. It was okay. And you were the, you were the star. I played Robert Petrie. It was yeah. o- okay. Didn't sell. And... Uh, I started doing movies. I wrote a, sh- a movie for Dar's Day, the film of it all. Mm-hmm. And Sheldon Leonard got a hold of these 13 scripts from my agent. And he said, he called me and he says, these are very good. I said, well, Sheldon, I don't want to fail twice with the same material. Mm-hmm. And here I impersonated pretty well. He says, you won't fail. I'll get a better actor to play you. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's exactly what they did. And that's how they found Dick Van Dyke. And what's interesting to me, again, there's no set way to do this because I'm like, I'm complimenting Carl Reiner for how he handled it. But there's also the opposite where like, that's a very similar story to how Stallone sold Rocky, where he got told no 10 million times Mm -hmm. because he wanted to play Rocky. And then eventually he was able to. And now Stallone obviously has been a massive star for 50 years. Um, so it does work out also, but what I, the, the part that I'm focused on with Carl Reiner is he could have become very, a very bitter guy, either a, he could have been miserable and said, no, I want to play. I want to be the main character. This is my show. I wrote it and I want to be the star of it. Or he could have allowed Vic Dick Van Dyke to star in it and become incredibly bitter. But neither of those things happened because Carl Reiner just had the, the right perspective. He had the perfect perspective to be the guy that he was sometimes on camera, sometimes behind the scenes. And eventually, you know, they brought him on to be uh, Alan Brady on the Dick Van Dyke show. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those of you that don't know, it's a show like, like you just said, it's a show about the writer's room. And now that's a very common thing. Yeah. Like, you know, Larry David plays himself. You had Entourage, which is about the the business of Hollywood. 30 Rock is like that. Uh, Larry Sanders show. There's so many shows throughout the years that have been about the business. At that time, people didn't, that was incredibly foreign to people. Mm -hmm. And Carl Reiner looked at it as like, hey, I'm just writing what I know. And I think that's what I would be best at. Um, And so there's a lot that went into that that we'll get into right now. Yeah, this is uh, Dick's job here. Yeah, so th- there was you know scrutiny over what profession the main character should be. And I've, like I said, Reiner's perspective was, well, I want to write something that I know, so he should be a TV writer. And the network didn't understand that. Yeah, the idea of a writer being the, the star of a situation comedy was new and also fought against by the head of the network. He said when he saw the pilot... He said, very good, very good. He said, but wouldn't it be better if, if he did something that everybody could, you know, could uh, understand and, and um, identify with, like, for instance, uh, an accountant? Or I says, yeah, sure, we can make him an accountant, and then we'll talk numbers in the office. I says, don't you realize what we're doing? He's working. He's a working man and having all the problems of a working man. But when he's in, he's in the office... He's making f- jokes because that's what they do for a living. And we can do bad, good jokes. If it's a bad joke, we'll say, don't put it in. I was an accountant. would have to be a funny accountant. And I said, there was only one. That was, at the time, it was uh, Bob Newhart. Yeah, and he's not Bob Newhart, goddammit. <laughs> so, but that's such a great point. Where a, he, This is where like executives have slowed down comedy and television forever. Well, I'm sure it's true of dramatic uh, television and movies as well where uh they don't understand the vision of the creative type that they are hiring to do this job they're saying hey carl reiner you're a really funny interesting innovative guy we'd like you to write a tv show and carl reiner says well this is the best way to do it and they're like no 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 i think i know the best way to do it actually as a matter of fact even though we just said that you're the creative one you know <laughs> And Carl Reiner says, well, A, he's looking at it from the perspective of there's so many more jokes we could tell and things like that. But it's also like he looked at it early on and opened the world up to a profession that people were interested in. Like people didn't know how the TV business worked. 
And he said they found out in like through filming the Dick Van Dyke show, he thought, Oh, a lot of people are here to just see the show. Like, Oh, we watch it on TV. Wouldn't we like to see it live? And what he realized is, Oh, people are coming to see how a show works. Like because of a show like that, people were interested in the behind the scenes stuff. Right. Like the how do they film it? How many yeah. takes do they use? All that stuff. And, th- and now executive, the, the same type of executive that was pushing back on Carl Reiner will say to people, eh, we'd really like something about inside Hollywood instead of the accountant show you're pitching. Do you have anything like that? <laughs> because that's what they know now. They know that works. So it's a weird uh, uh, rigidness where they've never been able to, like, they know what works and they want that. They've never been able to open their mind up enough. I'm sure there are plenty of examples of people that do open their mind. Like HBO has obviously been very good at it through the years. But so many times you hear these guys, these legendary guys have stories of people pushing back because executives just weren't willing to try something. And luckily, Carl Reiner was able to push enough that they did end up getting that uh, on the air where, you know, it's a 1950s version of Hollywood. So you weren't Mm -hmm. getting the real deal, but it was a step forward into getting something like the Larry Sanders show. You know, that's why you could see mattresses in the corner of every room in that show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in a second, too. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, Carl Reiner didn't win every battle necessarily. <laughs> uh, next, uh, Steve Martin. Uh, oh, well, let me, I, I didn't run. I thought we were uh, on Dick Van Dyke a little longer, but let me give one more detail is that um, we talked about this a lot with uh, Lucille Ball as well, where Carl Reiner uh, did not win the battle of, um, uh, some of the some of the censors like mm-hmm. the it was a f- you know famously that's an example of a married couple that slept in two separate beds mm-hmm. which i never understood like i don't get what who that was benefiting because there wasn't a couple that was like well we sleep in separate beds so that's what everyone should be doing like all married couples slept in the same bed who are they fooling i guess is my question with that version of censoring i mean it's probably for what like maybe 3% I, I'm sure I'm sure it happens, yeah. but my only thought is like they didn't want to people didn't want to have to explain it to their kids. But then it's like, well, what do they think when you guys are in the same bed? Maybe, you know, maybe don't watch it while they're in the room. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't get it. But um, but Carl Reiner explaining it was very interesting because um, he, he talked about how. Well, what we did is show their love through the writing. Like you could tell this was a couple based on how we wrote it. You could tell this was a couple that was intimate. We didn't have to overtly say it, but we wrote it in a way that that you could tell this was a couple that loved each other. That was intimate, even though there are scenes where they get into two separate beds and turn the lights out for the night. Right. 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 Um, So let's, uh, let's hear a little bit about, so Steve Martin, like I mentioned, uh, Mel Brooks, Dick Van Dyke, uh, Sid Caesar, a lot of these guys he had, he was tied to and had great relationships with. And Steve Martin is, is another one of those guys. So Steve Martin, who uh, we also did an episode about, we really had no choice but to do, do a Carl Reiner episode because we've done one about everyone else in his life. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, Steve Martin is, is kind of um, graduated, I guess, from stand-up comedy into the movie business, and they wanted to do his uh, first big feature film, and uh, they were looking at bringing in a seasoned director. Really, you're responsible for, I think, Steve Martin's film career, right? Because you directed him in his first, what, three, yes. four movies? I did. I, I'm not responsible. Nobody's responsible for Steve Martin, the person, because he is the single 
most brilliantly funny writer I've ever read. His, and serious writer, he writes like a dream. There's another writer who writes pretty well. Barack Obama's uh, autobiography is one of the best ever written. Um, mm-hmm. Born Standing Up, Dick, uh, Steve Martin's biography, one of the best biographies ever written. Sad, funny, brilliant. He's written a book on on uh, um, art that is as brilliant as can be. He is an absolutely brilliant writer. But when he did the first movie, The, the Jerk, uh, is that was it? Yeah, yeah, the first yeah. One. It was it was written by Hold two on. other guys. I like a guy, and granted, Carl Ryan is a little older when he's doing this interview. Yeah. But I like a guy that's done so much in his life. He's like. Was the jerk? Is that what I did with Steve Martin? <laughs> a, a legendary comedy. Yeah, like, in a like lot, is that what it was called? <laughs> yeah, and a lot of like the generations before us, like it's in all of their top tens. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I came in, and he had never done anything but stand up. So the first time he ever talked to other actors was in the jerk, and I did help him a little with that. But mainly, he's one of these guys you place on the ground and just say go, go. He's just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and so they did four movies together. The Jerk, probably the most notable, because like Craig said, that was... That's probably Steve Martin's defining movie, I would think. Like, that's what people point to as uh, not just his first movie, but he's like his best movie. And Steve Martin wrote it, obviously. um, So he gets a lot of credit there. But, like, I think that's where... uh, uh, That's how people remember the best version of Steve Martin would be his performance in The Jerk. And Carl Reiner was a guy that was brought in to direct him. And again, in the wrong hands, if you look at what Steve Martin was as a comedian, in the wrong hands, his movie career could have been a disaster. Abysmal, yeah. Because a lot of people didn't understand him at that time. Well, again, like Steve Martin's influenced a ton of people. So we've seen that kind of comedy a lot since him. But like he was a very new type of comedy uh, in his mm-hmm. in his stand up career. So the wrong director or even like we just talked about with Dick Van Dyke, if his movie gets, you know, kind of ripped apart by executive notes and all that stuff. Maybe we're not talking about Steve Martin, the legend. We're saying, remember the guy who did a couple comedy specials and then fizzled out at a shitty movie career? But, like, in the right hands, um, you're, you know, Steve Martin's able to flourish. And I think that's what Carl Reiner did, is when you have a talent like Steve Martin, you're able to kind of just let him go. So I think a guy like Carl Reiner, who is able to take a back seat in a situation like that, is absolutely pivotal to make Steve Martin into the film legend he became. Yeah, and here we have uh, Steve Martin and Carl talking about the jerk a little more. Okay, we'll hear that. I was called in because Steve had started doing this movie. I mean, he had written a movie, and it was called The Jerk. And it was was rife to be a starring role for a starring. And uh, I'm going to correct you. Yes. Because it wasn't called The Jerk. It was called? It was called, at that time, what happened is I had, had this idea for a movie based on some material from my act. And I wrote it with, uh, at different times, I can't remember the sequence, with Michael Elias right. and Carl Gottlieb. Right. And it was called Easy Money. Oh, Easy Money, right. When you came in, uh, you liked the script and you were kind of a... You know, a directorial god. Then I, I still am. Yeah, I know. Well, you had just done "Oh God" and all the had all these hits and everything, and also I had respected your entire career. And so we worked in the room over there, and we were talking. I said it needs a kind of title, you know. And I think I had just read Dostoevsky's "The Idiot," 
<laughs> I said, it needs a title like that, like the jerk or something like the jerk. Yes. And then that's when it became the jerk. <laughs> there, there's something to that too, where you, you don't have an appreciation for it because you don't even really notice it. But like a poorly titled movie could sure. kind of derail it. Can, you know what I mean? Exactly. People just think it sounds stupid. Right. Um, not, not that the original title would have done that really, but that is the thing like people don't really think about. Well, the um, the uh, something back then, especially being called the jerk, is going to get way more eyeballs being like, "What's that?" Yeah, it's all it's almost salacious. Right. Like, Ooh, that's that's naughty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Steve Martin's so fucking funny, man. And it's like as a kid, I didn't have an appreciation for Steve Martin really. Neither. Because I think the first thing I ever saw him in was Cheaper by the Dozen. That was the first thing I saw him in as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah. So like I didn't have an appreciation for his brilliance, but then obviously like doing the episode about him reading his book or listening yeah. to his book. Um He's so brilliant. And Carl Reiner tells the story of uh, the first clip we heard was uh, Carl Reiner accepting the Mark Twain prize, uh, which is like, I guess, kind of like the Lifetime Achievement Award for comedy. It's Mm -hmm. become more or less. Um, And uh, Carl Reiner always tells the story. I couldn't I I couldn't find the video, unfortunately, but uh, he, he tells the story of Steve Martin. He goes, oh, you know, all the people close to me were there at this event, except Steve Martin. Steve Martin sent in a video and he, you know, gives this thing like, I appreciate everything you did for my career. I so wish I could be there to watch you accept the Mark Twain prize. Unfortunately, and I mean, this is such a coincidence and I hate it, but unfortunately I had a dinner reservation next door. So I could not make it. And they zoom out and they re- realize he is at the restaurant next door. <laughs> so he just didn't go for this bit. <laughs> He's so so brilliantly funny, and yeah, uh, it's a gl- good that he had a guy like Carl Reiner there to kind of nurture him into movies. And you know, again, sometimes I'm guilty of overstating these things. Maybe Steve Martin just would have been, no matter who was directing him, he would have been successful. But I do think it is definitely a positive that he had a guy that was able to kind of let him be him and yeah, take a the, back seat as a director. And when you can say that stuff because there's no question that the two of them together worked. The other ones definitely right. there's variables. So for sure, yeah. Um, next we have him talking about uh, reality and writing. Uh, yeah, so I think this is all. This is actually the guy just had them uh, out of the order I wanted them. I think, but this is the um, clip I was looking for during the Dick Van Dyke thing because I think it's so important. We talk about it a lot with Norman Lear, rest in peace. Um, but this is the thing Norman Lear said a lot too is um, writing that's based in reality is just naturally so much better. Mm-hmm. And because we're raised on TV now, yeah. you get a lot less of that. You get people emulating what they saw on TV growing up. Right. Um, and that's what uh, Carl Reiner is talking about here. Yeah, because when, when it's based in reality, you can remember every fine detail and just add to every... I, I like well, it so much better. Well, what happens is it, it breeds unoriginality. Because even me, right. you, like if I like as a guy who's not a writer... So maybe this is not true if you asked like Tina Fey or something, but uh, as a guy who's not a writer, I would think of other television shows immediately. Right. right. You know what I mean? I'm sure that's kind of a, just a natural instinct is like, oh, I grew up watching Seinfeld. I want to write a show like Seinfeld. Whereas Carl Reiner didn't have that. Right. You know, he grew up, he was, he was a, a, a sewing machine salesman when right. he was 16. <laughs> uh, and then he was in World War II. 
Like those, those are his memories as a kid. And then I like, you know, getting married and living a real life and coming up through old school Hollywood. These are the things he was writing about. And I think that's very important as he's talking about here. In, in, the, in the shows that I consider good shows, there's usually one reality. There's somebody who thought of that show and it's their show, the Gary Goldbergs and the, the Larry Davids and the shows that work. And the Roseanne, it's Roseanne's reality, somebody's reality. But uh, they, no, and nobody can know what your reality is. You have to, I, I, Frank Tolloff was the best game and the best line. I said, it's got to be real. He's who's real? Your real or my real? It's my real. I don't know your real. So you got to, so when writers come to write for a show, they have to put their reality, you know, in tow. And I think that's, and Roseanne's actually a great example mm-hmm. of that. Because she's writing about just like a white trash, like that you wouldn't think that would be perfect for television, but then you realize it's Roseanne's experience. She grew up like that. Mm -hmm. So she's able to write about it and it connects with people, you know, like that's why a lot of kids like me would would watch Roseanne because it felt familiar. It felt kind of like their house or their friend's house or something. Um, So I think that's, that's definitely incredibly important. Not that you have to write about like, you know, I don't think necessarily the Dick Van Dyke show, if Carl Reiner is writing it had to be about a a writer's room because that's all Carl Reiner knows necessarily. I think it's more, he has to insert some level of reality to it. Meaning like that character has to really relate to Carl Reiner. If you're trying to write, you know, um, uh, like Archie Bunker is based on Norman Lear's father. If it was based on something Norman Lear had seen on television, it would just, there would right. be an uh, element of phoniness to it. It wouldn't seem real. It would seem like you were copying something. Yeah. And back then, like, like in music too, uh, there was just so many less ideas already done, you know? Right. So, cause like, I mean, there's only so many notes on a guitar or whatever. So you got to be very original yeah. now and especially nowadays everything's getting remade and every show is not an original idea so it already starts you know under well that, that, that i mean the hard thing too now is like you listen to a bunch of uh stand-up stand-ups on podcasts mm-hmm. where they're talking about bits that they're doing and then they'll get a comment like i remember this coming up recently with uh i guess david spade put a, a special out where he was doing a bit similar to something mark norman had and they were both released at the same time. And Norman was like, luckily I had the receipts where I could be like, well, here's when mine came out. Right. Because people are like looking to be like, Oh, you stole this idea or that idea. But I think now we're just at a point that so many things have been done in some way, shape or form. Not necessarily even everyone has seen them, but just enough ideas have been put out there. That's it's going to be similar to something else. Right. Rob Schneider and uh, Shane Gillis just had that too. Cause, uh, uh, Boy, that's disappointing. I know, but it's a, it was a <laughs> it, it was a kind of funny joke. But um, I think Rob Schneider's special came out on like Fox News or something. It did. Yeah, uh, it did on Fox News on Demand yeah, or something like but that. But Shane yeah. was talking, and he's uh, and he filmed his special. It hadn't come out yet, and his, the joke was in there. And it was about uh, if Joe Biden was a dog, you'd put it down. It was like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah. He's like, I saw the commercial for his special and went, fuck. <laughs> Deuce Bigelow is doing yeah. my joke. Right. <laughs> um, but here we have him uh, doing a dirty joke on Conan. Okay. Yeah. This is, uh, it, it, it functioned, the reason this is in here, it functioned both as um, 
uh, a way to talk about his work with George Burns, who he uh, directed in Oh God. But also, I just wanted to include this because I think it, it it it's a little longer because once you get to the end, you realize some of the stuff about censorship back in the day and uh, for as much bitching as we might do, how far we've really come with television. There's one story, I don't know if I can tell it, about George. <laughs> about George? Yeah, you yeah. can tell it here. I think so. I think okay. Yeah. There are no... There are no children in the audience. No children in the audience, okay. no. Well, there's Andy and I. We're there. We're there. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, he was a dear, dear man. As a matter of fact, one little story about it. We changed the scene one day, and I said, George, we're going to do a different scene today, so you better memorize. He says, I memorized the whole script. He memorized the whole... And he would have been in his late 80s or 90s he was, then. He was, he was in his late 80, 80-something. Yeah, okay. The last day of shooting, I went into his trailer to say goodbye to him, and I, I said, George, I'd like to ask you a question. I said, I, I wonder what I have to look, what's in store for me sexually? I said, I always see you, you're 80 now, I was 60 at the right, time. Right. I said, I always see you with two girls on the arm going out to dinner. I said, what do I have to look forward sexually? And he said to me, Carl, you ever try to put... An oyster in a slot machine. <laughs> Is that gonna, will this be on? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. I won't get arrested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what a lovely anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking now, I'm thinking now, when I first was on television, the censors, yeah. uh, we did the show of shows, Sid Caesar and I were in a sketch where we were being bombed in the World War I. The mm-hmm. Germans are dropping bombs on us, and Sid is yelling at the, at the heavens. He says, damn you, damn you. And the censor says, you can't say damn. Right. We couldn't say damn. So, darn you, darn you. Yeah. Because we had to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here I said that here. Yeah. (laughs) It's such a funny example to be like how far we've come when what you're talking about is shoving a limp 80-year-old dick into a pussy. (laughs) (laughs) And and you can't, in a war scene, say damn. (laughs) I like that because Carl, first of all, Carl Reiner's like, uh, are we going to get arrested? Yeah, I know. And then it, it was kind of a moment where he's like, well, we've really, what a pioneer I am. We've really come a long way. <laughs> uh, but we have reached our, uh, our favorite portion of the show. Oh, wow. This flew by. Flew so by. we're, uh, we're at him with Norm already, huh? Yep. He had, uh, he had a great appearance on Norm McDonald live and, uh, had a lot of fun with Adam Egott. And, uh, we get to hear a little bit of, about that here. My first Twitter, I remember, was a good one. It was, sometimes I'm beginning to worry about my short-term memory loss. That was the, oh. Sometimes I'm beginning to worry about my short-term memory loss. Sometimes I'm beginning to worry about my short-term memory <laughs> loss. That was it. Real Ed McMahon over here, huh? <laughs> Step right in the middle of your thing. <laughs> Ed McBoy. Ed McBoy. You tell Norm always loved having those old guys on too. I know. <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I and you know, 
Guys, let me know if there's stuff that I brushed over with uh, Carl Reiner. I feel like we hit the big stuff because in his latter years, he kind of just did whatever he wanted. He would make appearances like that, like you saw him with Conan and Norm and all of this. He would pop up as he would do a lot of voiceover work or, you know, one offs and episodes of sitcoms and stuff like that. He kind of just did whatever he wanted in his later years. He, he was relaxed, which is nice to see. And he passed away at uh, 98 years old in 2020. Um, the last thing he did was something they were doing during COVID, uh, where they were basically doing like, you know, how a lot of people did like those table reads and stuff like that during yeah. COVID. They, they were trying to do something like that. They called it like home videos, the princess bride. Mm-hmm. And the last scene is, uh, Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner reenacting a scene, um, where I don't know the princess bride well enough, but Carl Reiner's line is something to the effect of like, uh, all is well or something like that. I, you know, uh, Andy Mayo will know better than me what it is. <laughs> but in the translation of the movie is it basically means I love you. And so like the last thing, and this is days before he passed away. So the last thing he ever did on camera was basically telling his son he loved him, which was uh, kind of a nice moment. And uh, even like, you know, we mentioned Norman Lear at the beginning, uh, who also is unfortunately no longer with us. And um, they said that like Norman Lear was just hanging out with Carl Reiner back in the day and saw Rob Reiner as a young kid and Rob Reiner would just like do stuff around them. And Norman was like, ah, this kid's funny. And then eventually he had a show called all in the family where he was like, I think Rob Reiner should play meathead. You know, like (laughs) that's what those bonds created. And you know, now like we look at it as uh, nepotism and stuff like that, but these guys were so close that they just had that sort of relationship where they kind of wanted to help each other out and they liked each other's families and, all that stuff. So like Carl Reiner, really an admirable career. Like I didn't know a ton about him necessarily, um, but I enjoyed learning more about it. Oh, he also meant, I forgot to mention this. He wrote 12 books. He's also an accomplished author. So uh, the guy did a lot throughout his career. So look more into Carl Reiner. That's the purpose of these episodes, folks, is either walking down memory lane with you or introducing people to you that you're not quite as familiar with. Um, so if you don't know a ton about Carl Reiner, look into him because he's an interesting guy who definitely did a ton for television and comedy in general. Um, so rest in peace, Carl Reiner, rest in peace, Norman Lear. You're next Mel Brooks. We're coming for you. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, well, like I said, let me know about, uh, Ralph as well from the Howard Stern show. And maybe we will, uh, do a bonus episode on him as well. Um, so uh, hope you guys enjoy. We have a couple episodes coming up at the end of the year, kind of like uh, year in the review type. So we got the best specials of 2023 coming up. And uh, I was thinking of possibly also doing the comics to watch in 2024. Uh, if you guys would be interested in that, let me know. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, put a list together and we'll do episodes about that for the end of the year. And uh, best place to reach me is blindmike.net. That's where all our links are for goodness sake. Uh, whether you want to support the show for free or become a member on Patreon or YouTube, you get bonus content if you are a member. Um, so consider that. Go to blindmike.net. We have merch up there as well. So uh, all those links are there at blindmike.net. And uh, you can find Craig's stuff at verygoodshow.org, right? Yep. New uh, new episode of Rubbed Out. Uh, if you're listening on Patreon, came out yesterday. If you're listening for free, came out last week. So check that out. It's Craig's uh, true crime podcast where he's ripped off this format mm-hmm. and talking about uh, crime. So if you like this type of format, I guess, check that out as well. Verygoodshow.org. And uh, follow our boy Hack Ride, too. Hack Ride on uh, YouTube and... Uh, 
I think he has a website. I don't know what it is. Does he have a website? Um, I don't know, but uh, I think his Twitter handle is a hack ride. So I'm sure he yeah, posts so it. So follow there. him on YouTube and Twitter. And if you, if you follow me, it's easy enough to find him. Yes. So, uh, go, go find hack ride. Just look in the comments for the guy just typing in all caps and yelling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, all right, guys. Thank you. We appreciate it. And um, rest in peace, Carl Reiner. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Until then. Uh, what do I say at the end of this? Thank talk you to you next time on Why Are You Laughing. Goodbye. Zip it up and zip it out. Yeah.